Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at various places from the Dispatch and elsewhere, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so it's always appreciated if you do that as well. In this week's show, we're diving back into the Trump legal saga around the 2020 election. I'll cover the late-breaking developments surrounding Sidney Powell's ouster from the legal team and what proof we have that they have regarding any evidence of any allegations that they've made so far. In the second segment, we'll do the weekly COVID-19 update. And finally, we'll wrap up the light item segment this week, which features a special speech about California Governor Gavin Newsom. So that's the agenda for this week, and we'll just jump right in. So I said last week that it'd be the last time we talked about the Trump campaign lawsuits, and in the newsletter I said I was wrong about that, and here I am saying that I'm wrong again, because here we are back in the same place. So where are we now? It's actually a worse spot for the Trump campaign this week than it was in any previous week. They lost the most important case that they have in Pennsylvania. They are, they finally today, finally appealed that, and they're going to appeal it up to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and then they claim they're going to appeal it further to the Supreme Court. But I'm not entirely sure what they hope to win with either of those appeals, because just frankly, they don't have the facts, they don't have the law, and they don't have anything in between on their side where something has gone wrong in the case. They just they don't have anything tangible here that you, you can you know put your hooks into and say, okay, they can appeal this up and perhaps win this, and maybe you can see some kind of action here. They in Pennsylvania they've had a judge that's worked with them and tried to give them the best hearing possible, and they provided the court nothing. There's no evidence they provided. There's just nothing that they've given the court to say, okay, this is what happened and this is how we're proving it. And now, as of late Sunday, the Trump legal team has kicked lawyer Sidney Powell off of their legal team, claiming she has no part in any of the legal decisions. Now, this is interesting in so far that Powell has been at all the various legal press conferences that the Trump campaign has, has held. She's been across all cable news, uh, you know, all just at every single point where she's been the one, one of the more vocal ones on t- television at these press conferences claiming the most wild of these accusations, which is that the Dominion vote counting machines are responsible for the election being stolen and that there's evidence, direct evidence, of over 600,000 votes having been stolen. She's claimed that. She's she's been on places like Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo. She's been on Newsmax. This The most recent one, the interview she had was this past Wednesday, and it was the one that made the rounds quite a bit. And the thing about 
Powell is, and it's something that I've gotten in my texts and messages when people have asked me about this, is that what to make of her, because of all the people on Trump's team, she is considered the most real or valid attorney on his team. Everyone generally agrees that Rudy Giuliani, uh, Jenna Ellis, I think her name is, and some of these others that he has as part of this overall legal team, most of them are jokes. They have no experience in any relevant part of law. Giuliani hasn't been a relevant legal player in decades at this point. And so the question is, what do you make of all of this? And Powell is just the most legitimate attorney on this team. And here she is being the one spouting all of this. And now they've kicked her off for being this extreme because she's claiming hundreds of thousands, if not millions of votes were changed as a result of the Dominion company. And she's offered scant evidence to prove it. The White House, uh, reporters at the White House said late Sunday, this was in a tweet, that Trump told allies that Sidney Powell was too much, even for him, after Thursday. He sees the fight as uphill, but fleeting, and doesn't see her as helpful anymore, per several advisors. And that's probably a fair reading of things, because I... The only thing that you have here, and I'll get to it more here because I'm going to go through a story that kind of quotes various people here, but the only thing she's offered is an affidavit of a guy who claims he has special ops background who saw Venezuela's election get stolen through the use of this and similar software and claims that what happened on election night was eerily similar to what happened in those countries. He has no direct evidence that that what happened in those two countries is what, you know, what happened to Venezuela happened here, just that it seemed eerily familiar. So that's all we've got is that one affidavit, really. There's no other evidence from Powell. And so now she's off the team. She doesn't really have any capacity to sue on behalf of the campaign now. So the Washington Examiner, uh, Examiner, the newspaper or online newspaper and news magazine, they've been reaching out to the Trump White House and other places trying to prove anything Powell has said, as have many right-wing media organizations. And so this is what the Examiner had to say. They reported this story late Sunday. With Trump-allied insiders distancing themselves from massive and unproven election fraud allegations being made by Sidney Powell, the president's legal team announced on Sunday that the attorney has no direct role in their efforts. Sources close to the president told the Washington Examiner neither the White House nor the Trump campaign have seen any of the evidence Powell claims to have related to assertions about voting machines switching millions of votes from President Trump to President-elect Joe Biden. They argued that her claims overshadowed what they see as legitimate concerns about the mail-in ballot process. Even national security officials within the Trump administration said they have seen no evidence of Powell's claims. Quote, Sidney has made these claims, but she has not shown, to my knowledge, evidence to support them, not to the campaign and not to the White House. I don't know anyone who has seen the evidence. One senior administration official told the Washington Examiner, quote, where is that evidence? The more she goes out there, the more it overshadows the legitimate problems. The problem with this stuff is that you've got so over the top and you overshadow the illegitimate improper things that were done, end quote. 
Powell, who has represented and retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn since last summer, and his case, after he pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI, has been described as being part of the legal team by Trump and others previously and appeared alongside Trump personnel, attorney Rudy Giuliani, and Trump campaign counsel Jenna Ellis during a 90-minute press conference on Thursday. Quote, well, this is our this is representative of our legal team, Giuliani said. We're representing President Trump and we're representing the Trump campaign. When I finish, Sidney Powell and then Jenna Ellis will follow me. And that's a quote from the from that press conference they held on Thursday, which was making quite viral rounds after it came out. At the press conference in Washington, D.C., Powell claimed Dominion Voting Systems software was created, quote, at the direction of the late Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez to steal elections in his country, and that the machines, quote, can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, end quote. She has made similar comments during numerous TV appearances, but did not and has not provided evidence to the public, instead saying she will present her findings in court. On Sunday, after the Washington Examiner reached out to Trump insiders complaining about Powell's legal effort with the election, the Trump campaign released a statement saying she is not a member of their team. Quote, Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own. Giuliani and Ellis said. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. She is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity, end quote. Powell released a statement to CBS News later in the day saying, I understand today's press release. I will continue to represent hashtag we the people who had their votes for Trump and other Republicans stolen by massive vote fraud through Dominion and Smartmatic, and we will be filing suit soon. The chips will fall where they may, and we will defend the foundations of this great republic. Hashtag Kraken on steroids. End quote. Among the evidence Powell claims to put out that is far from proving a case of widespread frame is an affidavit that said, quote, the circumstances events in 2020 are eerily reminiscent to what this person allegedly witnessed in Venezuela, but provided no firsthand knowledge of any vote being switched in the U.S. Quote here from a Justice Department official, or just a person in the, not Justice Department, a person that they, the examiner got off the record. They said, if she really had the evidence, and she's saying, where's the, and she's saying, where's the FBI, where's the Justice Department, she should be the first one standing at their door or making it public to the whole world, the senior administration official told the Washington Examiner. Powell made several allegations on Newsmax on Saturday night, including that top Georgia state officials may have been paid to be part of the conspiracy with Dominion Voting Systems, which has denied being involved in a vote-switching scheme. Powell said she believes the alleged vote-buying scheme stretches back years and members of both parties are involved. Powell has provided no evidence of this, but said she plans to file something by Friday, if not earlier. So now we're talking at the end of the week. That's the end of the Washington Examiner report. I will link that in the show notes if you want to read the rest of it. There is more there. The other part that they highlight is that Fox News host Tucker Carlson said his show reached out to Powell, and she refused to come on and discuss any of the allegations she had. She didn't provide them any paper. She didn't provide them with any evidence at all that a word of what she said is true. She even got mad at Carlson's show in the process, hung up, and they have not heard from her since. And then he was even joking about it, saying that he he was willing to talk to her and even give her the whole week to discuss everything. He's had everything from UFO believers 
shoulders on to, you know, anything in the politics, and he was willing to talk to her, and she has rejected that. And the key thing here, I want to highlight here from, from this Washington Examiner report is this. If Sidney Powell actually does have this kind of evidence, one, why hasn't she already filed lawsuit? That's one. She hasn't so far. She keeps saying it's always a week or two weeks away. The second thing is this. If it is that legitimate and it is that real, why has she not gone to the Department of Justice or the FBI so they can investigate? Because you could very easily give this to the Trump campaign and have them do exactly that. Bill Barr could oversee that kind of thing if this kind of evidence was brought forward and these allegations were made. But of course, none of this has happened. None of this has been offered to anyone. You know, because this is exactly what happened with the Hunter Biden story. Somehow, Rudy Giuliani and his associates got a hold of Hunter Biden's laptop at this, at this specific counter computer store, and they were able to hand that over to the FBI, who started an investigation, and there's still stuff going on from that now in the Senate. So, there's basically no proof Sidney Powell has the goods on anything. Powell is saying that she'll continue to sue to reveal the truth in all this. The problem with that is that she can't sue on behalf of the Trump campaign. She'll have, she'll, she'll have to provide proof that she has what's called standing, which means she has to prove that she has, has been harmed somehow by this, that somehow she has the ability to go before court and sue on this. You just can't bring a lawsuit. The Trump campaign is the one that has the legal standing to sue here. And if you're not doing that here, then it undercuts the notion that you have a case at all. And so, again, there's just no proof that she has the goods on this. And if the Trump team hasn't been read into any of this, hasn't been provided any of this proof to even amount a single case anywhere, and now they've cut her loose, what are you, else are you supposed to think here? I mean, if they frankly, they should cut more of their people loose. They should get rid of Giuliani and Ellis as well, just get rid of all of them and get real lawyers who are involved with this. Because Rudy Giuliani just straight embarrassed himself in open court. He didn't. He wasn't aware of a single. He was asking questions of the judge to explain to him things that a first year law student would learn in their first year of con law. He didn't understand those types of things. And so all the hangers on that around him, they're about the same. This entire legal team should just be purged of these kinds of people because they're just unserious and harming any real legal battle that could be happening here. Because there are serious people in Washington, D.C. who pursue these things on a regular basis. I I learned from one of them in law school. He has a law firm in D.C. I won't bother to reveal his name because he has his own law firm, but I've learned from some of these people. They exist. They would very happily pursue this type of thing because it's their thing. And none of them are involved with his effort. It's just these celebrity-style lawyers who technically don't have the legal capacity to to argue in these areas of law. And so I'm left wondering here, if the Trump campaign is kicking her to the side, why should anybody else take her seriously? And the, the irony here, the real irony about this is that Sidney Powell is the one that everyone pointed to and said, this is the most serious person on this team, and I'm trusting that the Trump campaign has a case here because that's a serious lawyer. If I got that message 
text message, Facebook message, tweets, just the whole nine yards, or, and even people have written other op-eds about this. I, I, I've seen it about 20, 30 times. She's serious. We should take her claim seriously. She wouldn't just nuke her credibility on the basis of a fake claim like this. Even if you accept that is true, she's not trotted out the evidence. The only thing we have is this affidavit, and that affidavit is just not enough. I read through it over the weekend. It's only about eight pages long, and it is interesting. I have no problem believing at all that Venezuela and Hugo Chavez and the people after Hugo Chavez were using software or using some kind of system to fake the results of an election. Because there's no way I think a sane person would vote for Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. It seems very clear that that was the case, since we have all these Venezuelans who have fled to the United States, they've immediately hit American soil, and then when we get them lined up and ready to vote, they immediately vote for the party that even has the slightest hint of socialism in it, in the form of Democrats. One of the reasons that Florida is so red right now is because you have these contingent of Venezuelans living there who, along with the Cubans and some of these other groups who live in the in these socialist countries in South and Central America, they look at the socialist and the Democratic Party and say, you guys are insane. So I have no qualms believing that these people had their votes stolen when they lived in their countries. The problem is connecting that with what happened on election day. And no one has seen a thing that Sydney, no one's seen any evidence of what Sidney Powell alleges to have proof for. So we'll see. She says she's going to file something maybe sometime this next week because this report came out tonight, so I'll give her to the end of the week here. Maybe we'll see something. I don't know. But the time to do all of this is not to wait to do it. The time to do this is immediately right now because states are certifying their votes, And if you want the Trump administration to have the capacity to win a lawsuit here and overturn these results, you've got to make these arguments now. Because, I mean, it's Thanksgiving week, and we're coming up on the end of November here. The Electoral College is going to have, uh, they're supposed to have their vote sometime in mid-December. That can get delayed a little bit if we have some recounts here that, you know, delay things a little bit. But the time is now, because things are in a time crunch. You've got to have this stuff rolling immediately so the system can respond to it. And right now, that's not happening. They've got to present this kind of evidence now because Arizona's over. They don't have any lawsuits there. Georgia is over. They haven't had a legitimate, you know, any kind of lawsuit there. That recount, it changed the votes towards Trump a little bit, but only within the margins that you would expect in a recount. They found some votes that they didn't count, and so it moved things under. It went from about a 14,000-vote uh, lead to about a 12,500-vote lead. So about 2,000 votes there, which is a lot for a recount. But that's all that it changed, and it didn't change the outcome. And that's typically what they respect, what we would expect. And we, I, there's just nothing that I can look at, and I can say, okay, they've got a case here in this state And if they win that, that may open up a door that they can go through here. I can't look at any a single state across the Midwest and say, yes, that type of case exists. 
And the current cases that they have open right now, particularly the ones in Pennsylvania, I don't expect them to win. They're saying that they can get get that Pennsylvania case all the way to the Supreme Court. And I'll just be honest, I don't expect the Supreme Court to take a case from them. I don't expect them to take that case. I fully expect the Third Circuit to basically laugh that lawsuit down. And when they appeal it, I don't even expect the Supreme Court to hear it. In fact, if they held a vote on it, I would expect it to be 9-0 in that direction. So, the Trump campaign is not in a good spot. If they want to have a real legal challenge here, they need to have real lawyers doing it. They need to get rid of all these hangers-on. And they need to bring real evidence. If Sidney Powell actually has the goods here, she's got to bring it forward. Otherwise, no one should ever trust a single one of these people Ever again, you should throw their names onto the ash heaps of history where they are forgotten and laughed about. Because this is a little bit like Geraldo Rivera walking into, I believe, what is Al Capone's vault and getting there and, you know, all the buildup and everything and you walk in and it's empty. That's a little bit like what we're, we're dealing with here. There's not a single shred piece of evidence anywhere that they have the goods. And if they want to change something here with this election, they've got to have the goods. And so I'm not inclined to believe any of them right now because they're all taking actions that would suggest that they're all frauds. That is the problem here. If you're a legitimate attorney, you don't act like Giuliani, Ellis, and Powell are doing. You do not act like them. And so there's just not a lot of good signs here if you're trying to hold out hope here. I will, you know, if they've got evidence, I'm open to see it and read it. But I haven't seen it, and that's the problem. And in an election, you have to bring it out. Otherwise, I mean, you, you can have all these rumors for years, but it's not going to go anywhere. So there's no strategic value in waiting. Either you've got the goods or not, and right now there's no evidence they have the goods. There's not really a lot of evidence they have competent legal counsel ahead of this. So you need to see a wholesale change here and a lot of change happening fast. So that's all I've got on that for this week. It's not a huge update from last week when I went through some of the cases here, but they continue to lose these cases. Now, you're going to see some, I know some media outlets have reported that they've lost more than 30 cases, and that's not quite true here. They've had some of the, some of these, like, you know, Powell and Lynn Wood and some of these others, they've filed lawsuits on the election, but they've not been a part of the Trump campaign's legal efforts. These have just been what these lawyers have done on their own. And it really just looks like they're doing this to raise their own profile. And you get that with some of these celebrity-type lawyers. When they get a big name, they try to do stuff to raise their profile to get more money down the road. So that's what a lot of this has looked like. Uh, but barring any changes here, this is going to wrap up pretty quickly here because I, they have not brought forth evidence to provide a substantive legal case on this election yet. So that's all I've got on that for this week. We're going to jump into the COVID update next. But first, I'm going to take a quick break. As always with the COVID-19 update segment, we'll start with the top line numbers and then go from there. Let me pull these up. Testing numbers are off the charts and remain off the charts. We're going to go over 2 million tests in a day. So just in a single day, testing 2 million people. We're going to cross that threshold probably some point this week. We might see a slight slowdown 
just when you have some people who are getting ready for Thanksgiving and such. So it wouldn't surprise me to see a little bit of a slowdown, but we could also see a major spike here because I've heard and read a lot of ports where people are going to be testing family members before they all get together and trying to get those results in to see where everybody stands, which is smart. So, But the holidays can be a little weird because they can simultaneously slow down what you see on the backside sometimes, but speed up on the front where you're getting a surge. So I, you know, I'm expecting some weird numbers this week on that front. But anyway, we're very close to 2 million tests. We actually almost hit that on Saturday. We hit 1.97 million tests that day. It was a little bit more than that, so it was just around 30,000 short of the 2 million mark. And so that's just... I mean, if you remember back in the spring, when we were lucky to do 30,000 in a day, and now 30,000 is the mark, you know, is the difference between what we're hitting between... is the distance between us and 2 million tests. And we've done this literally in less than eight months. I cannot stress this enough. It is astonishing how good and how fast we've got at this practice because we've lost two months. February and March, you can just flush them down the drain because we didn't have the capacity to test for this disease. And so you did not see actual testing pick up until really May. It was about mid-May when we saw decent testing. And since then, it's just exploded. And so that is a great mark. So with all of this, it, it feels like we have a good feel for where we are on the case front. And that is both good and slightly terrifying because new cases are just astronomical right now. The seven-day average of new cases sits right now, late Sunday, at 168,000 per day. Now, just as a reminder, because you have to, you know, these numbers are big, and you kind of have to compare them to where we were. As a reminder, the summer peak, so at the very highest point of the summer. We were just shy of sixty-five to seventy thousand new cases a day across the country, and you can tack a hundred thousand on that number, and that's where we are now. So we've doubled, and in some, you know, some of these days, it's close to triple what we were in the summer. It is just astronomical, and we could be, we could go over to the two hundred thousand mark this next week or the following week. It is just an astronomical number. It's hard to comprehend that many new that many new cases coming in a day. Now, obviously, not all of these are going to be symptomatic. You have your asymptomatic people, which are estimated to be about forty percent of that. So, you know, with hundred thousand people, forty thousand of those, you would estimate to have no symptoms at all. And and with that, you have your people who just have their mild symptoms, and so you can kind of cut down the people who are actually going to be the problem here. But even with that, this is just a lot of cases. And the way that I've always looked to see whether or not this is actually a serious spike or not is to look at the hospitalizations. And that's what tells me that this current surge is worse than any of the prior two because hospitalizations are at all-time highs. We're setting new records, actually, because we're just shy of 84,000 active hospitalizations. And the previous peaks were just shy of 60,000 on the active hospitalization front. And you remember during those, we had reports of hospitals being overwhelmed, there not being enough workers. And that's true of here because we're far above that point. You've got a lot of hospitals that are full and they're, they're struggling to deal with this surplus of patients. And so... 
that I, you can look at the numbers and not see any change in that trend line either. It looks like it's going up, and it looks like it's going to go up for a while. Because even even if today, let's say today was the day that the new cases started dropping, you wouldn't see a drop in hospitalizations for 7 to 10 days because you would still be dealing with the cases coming in from this week. You know, because you, it takes, I mean, you can get infected, and if you're getting infected at a peak, you're still going to have those people coming into the hospital 7 to 10 days after that peak because there's always a delay in all these later data. So your cases are kind of the closest thing you have to an early warning sign. Hospitalizations are that middle warning sign that really tell you if this is a bad thing. And then deaths are the ultimate indicator here, because that tells you whether how bad you are at treating this or how good did you are. And so I guess that's a good segue here, because deaths are also surging. That is the other problem here, because the seven-day average for deaths is above where we were in the summer, actually well above that, and is sitting right at 1,500 deaths a day, with one-day totals coming close to 2,000. I think the highest was like, oh, it was over 1,900. I think it was 1,982, 87, something like that. It was extremely high. And it wouldn't shock me if we crossed the 2,000 mark at some point this next week, just because that's the trend line on that chart. So it will be the worst point at any that we've had on deaths with this thing. You'd have to go back to April to find anything like this. Now, during April, we were average. So you know, right now we're averaging about 1,500. We're, we're right at that line. At the absolute peak of March and April, we were averaging 2,000 deaths a day. That was the average. We had peaks well above 2,500. We had some awful days through there where more than 2,500 people a day were dying. And that is just a huge number. I know people like to compare that. Well, you know, we have 362 million people and so on and so forth. But 2,500 people a day dying from the exact same thing is an awful thing because two days you got 5,000 and pretty soon you're you're hitting that, you're hitting that 10,000 mark. And that's just a lot of people who are dying from a single disease. And so that is, those are our trend lines on that. They're obviously all very troubling. You don't want to see them this high. But because deaths are a lagging indicator, I would expect them to continue to climb until you see some serious movement downward in both hospitalizations and new cases. And until you see that, deaths will climb. Just because even if we are better at trading this and can save more people, the problem is just a numbers game. There are too many people getting this. And so that is going to cause your deaths to go up. Now, there is a potential bright spot in all of this, and that's aside from the vaccine. I wrote a column for the Conservative Institute, I think it was my Monday column, talking about how we're in a bright spot here. There's a lot of hope because you have these two vaccines. We have a lot more therapeutics on the market. So this is definitely, we have a lot of hope here. And so I try to all time, at all times balance these two things, looking at the hope and then also looking at what you have in front of you. And I think if you do that, you kind of get a pretty healthy perspective on where we are as a country. And so there is, within the data, a potential bright spot, bright spot. And I say this extremely cautiously just because we're about to go into all these holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and everything in between. And that could impact these numbers quite a bit. And we're also entering the winter where people are going to be indoors more. So I say this all very, very cautiously. It was just something that I noticed looking through them. But what I noticed was that this past week, if you're looking at the, the rate of tests coming back positive, 
they topped out at 10%, and they basically haven't moved from that point. They've kind of plateaued here and in between like the 9.7 and 10% range, and they've been that way for about a week and a half to two weeks now. And that is obviously extremely high. You want this to be back to where we were during the lulls when we were about at 4.5% at some of these points. However, the fact that it's plateaued, even while testing has increased, is a good sign by itself. Because because it suggests that the spread has not become more viral, it's sort of flattened out. It's high, but it's not increasing. Now, 10% is the highest point that we've had on this since May. It's an astronomical number, and you don't want it anywhere near this. And during the peak of the summer, we were lower than that. We were around the 8.5% at most. I think, were, that, I think the highest actually was just 8%. So we're considerably higher with more testing. So this is a lot more cases that we're catching. But a stabilization of any data point is a good sign because these new cases and the positivity rate, that tells you the viral spread and kind of how bad things are spreading. And so if it has stabilized, that could mean right now we're at the peak of the virus for this particular season and maybe we might be trending down in a few weeks. Obviously, and as I already said, the caveat to all this is the holiday season. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all the events that happen in between there. I think you'll have fewer of those, so you're not going to have the stuff like the work Christmas parties or the work potlucks, which makes me sad because my work always had one too. But you're not going to have those. You may have more friend groups getting together. You may have families. You know, your families have got three or four things they can do here. So there's just a lot of things that can happen through here that could cause spikes. And if people are getting together, they're gathering, they're eating, that could prompt a surge of the virus in some of these places. So you could see some particularly high flashpoints depending on how bad you know, the virus is spreading. So we've seen this happen a bit around other holidays. The difference, so like over the summer you had July 4th and people went out and they celebrated or Memorial Day or Labor Day, those types of things. And the thing about those holidays is that they're mostly outdoors. People go outdoors and they do things. And you're not really worried about the spread of the virus outdoors. It can certainly happen, but it's not as bad as indoor things. The the seasons and the holidays that we're hitting here, they're all more indoor functions just because it's cold. And so we tend to stay in more. And so that can cause a greater threat of the virus spreading. So I'm, you know... I'm not saying, like you hear a lot of the experts on TV, that you need to skip having Thanksgiving, Christmas, or stuff with your family. I'm not saying that. But I am urging some caution here because the threat is real. And if we see a post-Thanksgiving surge, then any of this slackening or this plateauing here that that I think could be visible here with this virus, that could go away and you could see the numbers go back up just because the virus will have had a chance to spread far more widely. And one of the last things I wanted to point out here and go through real quick is a report from the Wall Street Journal. They they had a really interesting report on Europe over the weekend that showed just some of the trend lines that we've seen on who the virus is impacting the most. If you're guessing the elderly, you'd be correct. And so the virus, it truly, really attacks anyone over the age of 60. And so the Wall Street Journal report, when they were covering only Europe here, and so I found some of their numbers interesting. So they said... 
Europe's older citizens are bearing the brunt of the coronavirus pandemic's second wave in the region. People over 60 make up more than 9 in 10 fatalities linked to COVID-19 since the start of August, figures show, with men more than women succumbing to it. The virus has now claimed more than 1.3 million lives worldwide. Doctors say they are seeing modest improvements in survival rates among all age groups as their armory of treatments expands and their knowledge of disease deepens. Quote, on the ground, the demographic is pretty similar to what it was, said Tom Wingfield, an infectious disease physician in Liverpool, England. But people are having better outcomes, he said. The 27 countries of the European Union and the UK have recorded 106,281 deaths linked to COVID-19 since the start of August through November 19th, according to European Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That compares to 177,000 deaths across the region during the first wave outbreak through July 31st, when lockdown slowly slowed daily reported deaths to fewer than 100. So that compares to more than 4,000 a day in the spring and the peak in April when the toll among older people grew as the virus seeded inside nursing homes across the continent. So if you're trying to count at home, that's a difference of around 60 to 70,000 deaths there compared from now to the spring. So that is a distinct improvement. Back to the story. Demographic data on all deaths in Europe isn't available, but an analysis by the Wall Street Journal of around 78,000 deaths inside the European database of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 shows that in both the first and second waves, more than 90% of deaths were those in the age of 60 and over. Those over 80 years old account for a slightly higher proportion of second wave deaths with 67% of fatalities in that age group from age from August 3rd to November 15th. That compares to 60% for the year through July 31st. Men made up about 50% of all, 56% of all deaths across both waves. So I'll link to that. They go into some more stuff. It kind of tells you what you already know, that this is harder on the elderly population. And that's also been true, interestingly enough, in some of the vaccine reportings. This, uh, the two vaccines that we have are based on mRNA technology, and one of the things that they were noticing is that it wasn't quite as effective as those who were, who were potentially uh, older, because the difference with an mRNA vaccine and a standard vaccine is that mRNA does not give you a, like a dead version of the virus for your body to fight off. So you know, your traditional vaccines, you get an actual version of the virus, your body fights that, learns to overcome it, and that's it. This is slightly different technology where you give your body something else and it learns to fight it that way. And so what they were showing is that that um, the last thing I read about these vaccines showed that an elderly population did get higher immunity to it. It just wasn't as strong as what you would see in a younger population. So there is very there's a very interesting age gap here with both this specific virus and how vaccines are interacting with you know, versions of this virus. It, it works. It's just, it's, it's interesting to note that it, it's different for different age groups. So again, I'll link to that Wall Street Journal story in the show notes if you want to check it out. Just to note here, you know, the COVID surge continues apace and it's still a threat. So I hope you all have a happy and safe Thanksgiving because the threat from this virus is real, but I also hope that you're able to celebrate responsibly because even with if it is this bad you don't want to give up family and friends so i hope you're able to do that safely and responsibly 
So with that, we'll jump into this week's light item. This week, it's brought to you by C-SPAN and Representative Tom McClintock of the 4th Congressional District in California. He is a Republican. And this past week, he gave a speech where he aired his thoughts about California Governor Gavin Newsom, who violated his own orders on not eating out at restaurants and congregating in crowds. Now, if you missed this story... Uh, Some reporters in California caught Gavin Newsom eating at a very fancy restaurant with a large crowd of uh, family and friends, and they were enjoying a night out. No masks, eating all at the same table, and this is at a time when he has orders out banning that exact behavior. So he violated his own orders. So that's what happened. If you want to Google that, you will find many stories where the reporters were taking pictures and then showed it to everybody. And so it made a lot of instant populists out of a lot of people who wanted their torches and their pitchforks to go burn some things down. So I'll let the representative take it away from him here and describe his thoughts on Gavin Newsom. Mr. Speaker, I rise this morning in defense of Governor Gavin Newsom, who recently defied his own idiotic COVID edicts as he partied at one of the few restaurants that's not yet been forced out of business. I defend him because he was doing what we once all did in a free society, make our own decisions over what risks we're willing to run and what precautions we're willing to take according to our own circumstances to protect our own health. Yes, COVID is a nasty bug, and a quarter of a million Americans have died while having it. But this isn't the bubonic plague. The CDC's best estimate is that if you're under 49, Your chance for surviving COVID, if you get it, is 99.92%. Even if you're over 70, you have a 94.6% rate of recovery. 40% who get it don't even know they have it. And yet we've allowed our officials to ruin our quality of life over it, destroying countless businesses, throwing tens of millions into unemployment, robbing our children of their educations, and shredding our most cherished rights as Americans. Governor Newsom's night of partying should be a wake-up call for every American. Every time we step outside our homes, the risks that we face multiply. A free society assumes that its citizens are competent to assess those risks, balance them against the avoidance costs, and to manage their decisions in a generally responsible way. It's called common sense, and it's a necessary prerequisite for self-government and liberty. The choice of an octogenarian with emphysema might be very different from those of a healthy governor of California. Only a fool would claim the omniscience to make an informed judgment for every person in every circumstance in every community. Yet sadly, this crisis has revealed that fools abound in public office and that a fool with power can quickly become a petty tyrant. Which brings us back to Governor Newsom. These government nannies love to tell us that they're just following the science. Well, what does this science actually tell us? It tells us that COVID poses virtually no risk to children, but can be severe among the elderly. So what did these lockdown leftists do? They closed all the schools and ordered infected patients into nursing homes. The science tells us that outdoor transmissions of the virus are extremely rare and that 80% of infections occur in people's homes. So what did these lockdown leftists do? 
they closed our beaches, parks, and campgrounds and ordered people to stay at home. The science tells us that obesity is a contributing factor to the severity of the disease. So what did these lockdown leftists do? They closed all the gyms and kept the liquor stores open. These lockdowns haven't saved lives. The states with the most stringent lockdowns generally have the highest mortality rates from COVID. Utah stayed open while next door Colorado shut down. Utah currently has half the COVID mortality rate and three-fourths the unemployment rate as Colorado. But the lockdowns have cost countless lives from suicides, drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, and deferred health screenings and treatments. Recently, Governor Newsom demanded that restaurant diners replace their masks after every bite, but also minimize the times they're taken off. I guess that means you take really big bites. Thanksgiving dinners are allowed in California, but only when they're held outside, guests are seated six feet apart, and they last no more than two hours. Now, it's all right to use the bathroom, but only if it's frequently sanitized. Otherwise, presumably, you'll just have to use the bushes. And for God's sake, no singing. I've wondered how much longer the American people are going to tolerate this nonsense. So let us not criticize Governor Newsom. Perhaps he's just offered us all deliverance from his own folly. Nor should we criticize the California legislators who ignored travel and quarantine restrictions to junket in Hawaii. Nor should we ridicule Speaker Pelosi for choosing not to wear a mask in a hair salon that was forced to close for the rest of us. Good for them. They're demonstrating by their actions the freedom that every American citizen needs to reclaim from these very same people. The governor should make his own decisions about running his own life. I only ask that he and his ilk would stop telling the rest of us how to run ours. I yield back. Well, you can't beat that, can you? I'm not going to add anything to it. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.